The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. We are essentially treating international communications by U.S. persons as waiving any privacy interest in those communications. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 22nd, 2023. On December 31st of this year, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act will expire unless it is reauthorized by Congress. Section 702 authorizes the U.S. government, in order to obtain foreign intelligence information, to target foreigners who are reasonably believed to be outside of the U.S. and collect their communications inside the U.S. without a warrant, even when such surveillance may involve the incidental collection of communications of U.S. persons. Privacy and civil liberties advocates have long raised concerns about the government's ability to conduct so-called backdoor searches of U.S. person information acquired incidentally through the collection of the communications of foreigners. U.S. government officials have argued that it is imperative for Congress to reauthorize Section 702. To talk about Section 702 and its reauthorization, I sat down with Travis LeBlanc, a member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board and a partner at Cooley LLP. We discussed his concerns with the way the government may search or use U.S. person information incidentally collected under Section 702, the aspects of the government's position on reauthorization on which he may agree, and how he believes Congress should reform Section 702. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 22nd. Travis LeBlanc and FISA Section 702. Travis, you are a member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, often called the P-CLOB for short. Before we dig into FISA Section 702, can you tell us about the P-CLOB's mandate? What is its focus? What has Congress authorized it to do? Well, before getting into the substance of the PCLOB, you know, like a good government employee, I should note that I'm here in my individual capacity. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views of uh, the board or any of its board members. As you noted, I am one of the presidentially appointed Senate confirmed members of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. It is a five member 
bipartisan, independent agency within the executive branch that is tasked with overseeing uh, the executive branch to ensure that its activities to protect the nation against terrorism also balance privacy and civil liberties concerns. Because currently President Biden is a, is a Democrat, uh, three of the members of the board are Democrats and two are Republicans, with the chair being a full-time employee and the remainder of the board members serving in a part-time capacity. We have two general functions that we do day-to-day, one of which is to provide advice and the other is oversight. In our advice capacity, uh, which is typically confidential, we are called upon by the 17 components of the intelligence community to assist them with providing counseling around privacy and civil liberties concerns of national security programs and activities. In an oversight capacity, we're in more of an uh, independent capacity there, which is often public and often garners a lot more um, attention, uh, where we are looking at programs and activities that we independently uh, determine to look into to assess uh, the extent to which the privacy and civil liberties concerns are adequately protected in the, eff- the nation's efforts to protect against, uh, against terrorism. Fortunately, all of the board members have uh, top secret security clearances, which is necessary to conduct a lot of our work since the programs and activities that we typically work on are highly classified. And that's probably a good segue into FISA Section 702. Is it fair to say that there are classified aspects of the government's application and use of FISA Section 702? Yes, definitely. Section 702 is a highly uh, classified program. Only a select amount of information about the program has been officially declassified, which, you know, unfortunately will limit the information that I'm able to share in this setting. So my comments today are really driven by what's already been declassified about Section 702. And, you know, when we review a program like Section 702, we engage in both classified and unclassified aspects of the program. We evaluate it, and then we provide recommendations addressing potential concerns that uh, the board may have identified. As, As you may know, Section 702 was initially a program that was authorized and approved by the president after September 11th, which means it was operating pursuant to the president's authority. But in 2008, Congress statutorily authorized the 702 program, and it is now officially recognized as an amendment to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act codified in Title VII of FISA and found in Section 702. Can you give our listeners a general understanding of the purpose of Section 702 and what it authorizes the government to do? Who can the government target? What can it collect? Section 702, um, as I mentioned, is, is codified as part of FISA, and it authorizes the executive branch to target the collection of communications of foreigners 
reasonably believed to be located outside of the United States in order to obtain foreign intelligence information. Importantly, Section 702 can't be used to target U.S. persons reasonably believed to be in the United States. That surveillance generally occurs in Title I or Title III of FISA. It is, Section 702 is different than traditional FISA collection uh, because of the scale of surveillance under Section 702, among other differences. In 2014, the PCLOB did a very public report assessing the Section 702 program as it operated at that time. The report discussed two types of surveillance in particular. One type was upstream surveillance, which sees the United States collect internet traffic through the internet backbone. The other kind of surveillance discussed in the 2014 report was downstream surveillance, then known as PRISM, which, and I'm quoting, which permitted the government to send selectors, such as an email address, to a U.S.-based electronic communication service provider, such as an internet service provider, that has been served a directive. The directive compels the provider to give the communication sent to or from the selector to the government. As will not surprise any of your listeners, the providers who receive a directive aren't allowed to discuss the directive. It's also important to note that no court approves the issuance of a particular directive under Section 702, and therefore no court approves the specific targeting of any particular individual in connection with the operation of the 702 program. While providers, electronic communication service providers, can challenge the directive before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, those proceedings are rare and they are highly classified. Now, you mentioned that under FISA Section 702, the government is only allowed to target non-U.S. persons. But sometimes the communications of U.S. persons are collected in the course of the surveillance directed at non-U.S. persons. Can you explain how that happens? I think I can, uh, Stephanie, at least to the extent, to the extent uh, possible. So there is a term called incidental collection, which in the context of Section 702 is used to refer to situations in which U.S. persons or people located in the United States have their communications acquired because they were in contact with a targeted foreigner who's located overseas. To the extent that a Section 702 target is in any communication with someone who is in the United States or otherwise a U.S. person, those communications are lawfully collected pursuant to the program as well. This allows the U.S. government to obtain U.S. communications without a warrant. Now, true, we, when architecting the program in the United States, could have architected this program a different way. That is, it could have been architected to only collect foreign-to-foreign communications. Instead, we've allowed the collection of domestic communications where at least one person is a foreigner. 
And as a result, the program is collecting U.S. persons in contact with a targeted foreigner. In, in my view, we are essentially treating international communications by U.S. persons as waiving any privacy interest in those communications. That, that really highlights the constitutional and legal challenges that the program has faced. We know that if the government wanted to target the U.S. person, there's no question that it would need a warrant to obtain access to U.S. person communications, unless it falls within a warrant exception. For many, the scanning and collection of their communications is a constitutional moment. That is when you're using it you know, to scan and collect the communications of U.S. persons. However, in the operation of Section 702, that moment does not take place or, or at least is not recognized as being constitutional for a variety of, of reasons. So with respect to the collection or incidental collection of U.S. person information under FISA Section 702, I want to talk to you a bit about what is publicly known. For example, do we know the number of U.S. persons whose information is incidentally collected every year? No, we do not know the number of U.S. persons whose information is incidentally collected every year, but we need to know that. In the 2014 PCLOB report reviewing the Section 702 program that I mentioned earlier, the board recommended that the National Security Agency attempt to calculate or otherwise obtain this number. I've been a strong advocate for uh, calculating or estimating incidental collection along with the tagging of U.S. person data when an NSA analyst identifies such data in the course of an investigation. During the 2018 reauthorization, there was a lot of pressure to calculate the number of U.S. persons whose information was incidentally collected every year. Then the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coates, told Congress that to do so would be infeasible uh, because the intelligence community and the NSA in particular, I, I, you know, couldn't calculate an exact, uh, accurate, meaningful and responsible number uh, as part of this. I've yet to see the infeasibility of how to calculate the number and have been recently uh, reviewing a paper that Jonathan Mayer's research group at Princeton University has put out proposing a solution on how to estimate the incidental collection in connection with the 702 program. Professor Mayer's research proposes a novel approach to estimating incidental collection using secure multi-party computation, or MPC. The intelligence community possesses records about the parties to intercepted communications, and communication services possess country-level location for users. By combining these data sets, with MPC, Professor Mayer believes it is possible to generate an automated, aggregated estimate of incidental collection that maintains confidentiality for intercepted communications and user locations. This seems pretty novel to me. I've yet to hear 
any concerns with Professor Mayer's approach. And it does seem as if it would meet the standard of at least feasibility that we were thinking about back in 2017, 2018. You know, as mentioned earlier, though, I also believe we need to, in addition to counting the or estimating the incidental collection, when an analyst becomes aware that a particular communication involves a U.S. person, it seems reasonable to implement a um, a flag or a tag that would allow that analyst to easily note that they reasonably believe this to be a U.S. person so that this information uh, can be known to others who may come across the record in the future and or can also trigger retention or deletion requirements uh, as well as facilitating uh, transparency around the actual uh, number of U.S. person communications that are reviewed by a, a human being. Uh, for the entire time that I've been a member of this board, um, I've advocated for more transparency around counting and tagging, not only in uh, statutory programs like Section 702, but also in the EO 12333 context as well. So if we don't currently know the number of U.S. persons whose information is incidentally collected every year under Section 702, do we know about all of the kinds or types of cases or investigations that the FBI may query databases containing U.S. person information collected incidentally under FISA Section 702? Very, very good question, Stephanie. So the collection and searching or querying is sort of the term of art that we use in the Section 702 context is governed by the targeting minimization, and querying procedures of each relevant intelligence community agency. Every year, those procedures have to be approved by the Attorney General, the Director of National Intelligence, and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. The targeting procedures cover how the government will target foreigners. The minimization procedures cover the use, retention, and dissemination of uh, Section 702 information, and the querying procedures cover the searching of collected Section 702 information. Most importantly, querying is really, again, another word for searching. The FBI can search a 702 collections when it reasonably believes a search will be likely to return foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime, which is to say not only whether it's relevant to the target of the collection or whether it's relevant to national security, but the FBI also has the ability to search for evidence of any, any crime. Presumably, anything under Title 18 would be fair game. And by looking at some of the compliance incidents that the Bureau has had over the last several years, we can tell some of the other ways in which Section 702 collections have been queried by the Bureau in violation of their procedures. We do know that significant compliance incidents occur from public FISA court documents and government public compliance incident reports. And there have been several iterations of the kinds of compliance incidents that have happened in the past where individuals at the Bureau have queried Section 702 collections for, you know, looking for derogatory vetting 
or, you know, vetting pastors and members of the FBI Citizens Academy, which is meant to um, foster better community relations with the Bureau, running those names through 7 Section 02 collections, running office repairment through Section 702 collections, individuals who provide tips or are victims of a crime, running local political party uh, through, or even a member of Congress through. Clearly, the use of Section 0702 to at least query has been much more expansive than approved and goes, you know, and has gone in the past beyond even uh, Title 18 evidence of a crime and foreign intelligence information. So as you've just noted, this sounds like rather expansive searching through 702 databases. Do we know how often the FBI queries 702 databases for U.S. person information? We do have a sense of how often the Bureau has been querying Section 702 uh, collections, at least over the past two to three years. In 2021, the FBI conducted 3.4 million searches of Americans' electronic data, including approximately 1.9 million related to a cyber threat from Russia. And we also know that in uh, 2020, it queried Section 702 collections for U.S. person information approximately 1.3 million times. In recent testimony, FBI Director Chris Wray noted that the 2021 number of U.S. person queries, um, 3.4 million, has dropped around 60%. Now, I'm just kind of doing this in my head here, but if you do the math on a 60% drop, that's approximately 200 some odd thousand uh, queries that would have been done in 2022. Now, that would have been, so to review those numbers, 1.3 million in 2020, 3.4 million in 2021, and 60% less in 2020. To approximately, uh, you know, 200,000 uh, or so. If you add them all up, it's around 5 million uh, queries of U.S. person information over the course of three years. We do have to then wonder about the, the value of each of these queries, bearing in mind that of all 702 collections that the U.S. government collected in a, a one-month period, I believe in last year, 45 of that collection made its way to the Bureau. So 90 plus percent never makes its way to the Bureau, and therefore the Bureau is not searching it as a part of U.S. person queries. But so we're looking at 4.4%, which is compounded every single month or every single year, so that when the Bureau is actually conducting a query, it's not just querying the data that was collected in 2021. It's querying the data collected in 2021 and 2020 and 2019 and 2018. So it all compounds itself to run these 5 million searches uh, that we've been talking about. From the outset of sort of looking at this program, I've really been trying to understand how valuable these 5 million searches have been. And even if you look at the reforms that the Bureau has appropriately taken uh, in the last year and a half or so, 
Those numbers, even though they're substantially reduced, again, that 60% number, if you bring it down, even if it's at 200,000-ish or so, that 60%, you're looking at 550 queries you know, per day of U.S. person information in the, in the database. And, you know, those numbers are still remarkably much higher than other components of the intelligence community, NSA or the National Counterterrorism uh, Center, NCTC, or even CIA, who combined, when they report their transparency numbers, run U.S. person queries of about 9,000 versus 200,000, 3.4 million, 1.3 million. So I think we really have to ask ourselves, you know, what's the value of U.S. person queries and, you know, how many have resulted in preventing terrorist attacks in the United States? How many have resulted in criminal convictions in the United States? How many of these queries have made us safer? You know, I, I, I am really interested in understanding the that that when we look at the value of the program when we look at the value of us person queries we have to focus on n- not not so much what the value of the targeting is and its efforts to to ensure that we are appropriately mitigating foreign risks but also to just understand why in the context of domestic only situations or even domestic situations it's as important to query these particular collections as much as we are doing or have been doing um, over the last several years. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you touched a bit on this before, but I'd like to put a finer point on it. If the FBI was investigating a case and wanted to access the kinds of information collected under FISA Section 702, it would normally have to get a warrant either a warrant under Title I of FISA or a warrant under the Wiretap Act. So the FBI is getting access to information that would normally require a warrant, 
which when getting a warrant requires a probable cause finding made by a federal judge to collect. Um, it is my understanding that that is why s- some call these queries, quote, backdoor searches. Assuming all of that is correct, how does the kind of collection that Section 702 authorizes differ from what is often referred to as traditional FISA collection under Title I of FISA? Under Title I, if the government wants to target a U.S. person, they are required to get a court order of probable cause that the target is an agent of a foreign power or engaged in foreign or counterintelligence activities. Section 702 is different than Title I surveillance because the court which oversees the surveillance, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, approves procedures that I mentioned earlier. It doesn't actually approve a particular targeting or even a a warrant, unlike in traditional surveillance uh, law, um, whether domestically or under Title I of, of, of FISA. The procedures that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court reviews allows the government to search for information, uh, search or query for information of targets who may have had no connection to national security, who were not the targets of the actual directives that may have been issued um, pursuant to Section 702, but whose communicated with a target and therefore may have had their collections intercepted or otherwise obtained. Under Section 02, then, there's no warrant requirement. There's no probable cause requirement. It is not a, uh, when querying, it's not a particularized uh, determination. And the government can search the collected communications for any purpose no matter what that is, as long as it can lead to evidence of a crime or foreign intelligence information. In the FBI's case, uh, the procedures uh, permit the Bureau to query its collections whenever they believe that a query is reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence information or reasonably likely to return evidence of a crime. Now, turning to the topic of congressional reauthorization of FISA Section 702. As you've noted, Section 702 is expiring at the end of the year, and the government is seeking its reauthorization. And Travis, you've been very vocal about your concerns with a clean authorization of FISA Section 702, where no reforms are made. But before we get to those concerns, I want to talk about where you agree with the government. Over the past several weeks, the government has been talking about the critical tool Section 702 is for our national security. At a recent event at the Brookings Institution, Matt Olson, the Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division, said that if Section 702 expires, the government would lose, quote, indispensable intelligence. 
Are there aspects of the government's position on Section 702 reauthorization that you do agree with? Yes. I believe that the Section 702 program has significant and immense value, that lives have been saved as a result of this program, and that the country is safer with Section 702 than without it. It also allows us to keep up with evolving national security threats, such as cyber attacks on the the homeland. I also believe that there's generally a culture of compliance within the intelligence community, and that in particular, the presence of civil liberties and privacy officers in each IC component can be credited for a lot of successes in the privacy and civil liberties uh, compliance of the IC, and that those officers are truly critical to ensuring that the agencies continue to consider, um, respect privacy and civil, civil liberties in their surveillance activities. I also agree that the intelligence community's compliance with efforts to protect privacy and civil liberties has continually gotten better throughout the operation of the program and throughout the oversight that the program has received over the last decade or so by the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, by Congress, by the um, inspectors general, as well as by the internal components within each of the intelligence agencies. I particularly would want to highlight the efforts that FBI Director Ray made in 2021 to improve the privacy and civil liberties protections associated with uh, U.S. person querying. And finally, I also agree with Assistant Attorney General Matt Olson that the compliance issues that the program has had in the past involving U.S. person information are, in his words, and I'm quoting, especially damaging to the public trust. And it is for that reason that I believe that a clean reauthorization here is not the ideal scenario, but that you know common sense changes and reforms uh, to the program would ultimately help ensure and promote public trust. So you've touched on some of them, but I want to give you the opportunity before we talk about what reforms you'd like to see Congress make to Section 702, I'd like to give you the opportunity to talk in greater detail about some of your concerns with the way the government searches or uses U.S. person information collected incidentally under Section 702. As I mentioned before, and what I'd like to, what I should expand upon here, is that I do have concerns about a clean reauthorization without significant common sense reforms to address privacy and civil liberties concerns. These concerns are related to incidental collection of U.S. persons, sharing of information within the intelligence community and outside of it, as well as court oversight. We can get into a 
a, a very deep academic discussion on the issue of incidental collection. But there are three or four points that may, that in my view, distinctions, three or four distinctions that warrant a more sophisticated scrutiny of the laissez-faire searching of all lawfully collected information. First, and you know, I mentioned previously the concern about uh, waiving U.S. Pers- the rights of U.S. persons, privacy rights of U.S. persons with respect to communications with foreigners. Um, Section 702 is a program designed to operate uh, essentially extraterritorially or extra constitutionally outside of the Fourth Amendment by targeting um, individuals who are reasonably believed to be located outside the United States. Now that's, you know, that view of it being extra constitution, the fourth amendment not really applying really goes back to a long line of Supreme court cases suggesting in, in particular that, um, either there's no constitutional right outside of the fourth amendment, right outside of the United States or at the border, even Americans have lesser, uh, privacy interest in certain situations. Uh, that's old case law. Clearly, it didn't consider big data. Um, it doesn't consider technological um, advancements. And there's uh, new case law around privacy that has come to fruition. But I, I do think it's worth noting the new case law that we have and sort of rethinking whether the old uh, diatribe that we've relied upon is necessarily as strong today as it may have been 30 years ago. Second, the government often argues that it should be able to query Um, lawfully collected information for one reason, even though it's using it for a different reason, because it's more efficient. Efficiency and legality are cousins, but they're not siblings. I note that conduct may be not covered under the Constitution when done one way, but when done in a different context, it may be covered by the Constitution. And the mere fact that it's efficient doesn't necessarily mean that there is any constitutional moment that takes place. Which leads me to my third point, on the other hand. While efficiency and legality are cousins, efficiency and efficacy are siblings. Think about it. Five million queries over a short period of U.S. personal information. What do we have to show for it? Yes, we know it was efficient. We know the search was efficient. They they did it. They they were able to query five million times. In one instance, three point four million times in a very short period. But were they effective? Where are the criminal prosecutions associated with those 5 million queries? Where are the Section F2 orders requiring the FBI to get a warrant in a predicated criminal investigation? Do you know, you could look at their reports, transparency reports that have been published. And if you look in 2018 at the number of F2 orders, again, an order for a warrant that the FBI is supposed to get anytime it conducts a predicated criminal investigation. In 2018, that number was zero. In 2019, that number was zero. In 2020, that number was zero. In 2021, that number was zero. So we are querying over 5 million, or you know, approximately um, 5 million U.S. person terms in a three-year period 
where we haven't gone uh, at all during that time to the court to obtain a warrant for any of those. It's not aware, at least that that I'm aware of, of 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 criminal prosecutions. And if there, you know, and we also are are not at the same time seeing or hearing about a lot of other uses of this uh, that have otherwise made us safer or better protected us. My view is that, you know, there is, and I have a concern that we're sort of having a post hoc realization for what is much more accurately described as a fishing expedition. Lastly, I'd note that collection, querying, and dissemination are different. It's one thing to collect. It's another to decide who gets to read it and, you know, when there has to be masking and when there doesn't. Even the FBI distinguishes between collection and querying and dissemination. Why should we assume that there is not a legal distinction as well for each of those activities? So based on all of those concerns, what reforms do you think that Congress should make to FISA Section 702? Incidental collection is a significant issue to tackle. As we discussed earlier, we don't know how many U.S. communications are collected pursuant to Section 702, despite the fact that since 2014, uh, the PCLOB has recommended the NSA develop a methodology and release the number of U.S. person communications collected under the program. However, that hasn't been done. We also know there's a massive number of queries. Um, as I mentioned, you know, over the last three years, it, you know, approximately um, is, is, is 5 million. That's 5 million times that someone or someone ran searches of 702 collections, which are foreign communications, to look for information about people who are presumed to be U.S. persons. And what are they looking for? I think it's really important that we understand whether there are examples of value from those queries. Because as of now, we seem to have in the public domain minimal to negligible examples of value. We also have a lot of compliance issues, as AAG uh, Olson um, referred to in his prior comments, and as I've also highlighted some during our conversation uh, today. This is the story of how U.S. persons are being uh, swept into the operation of the 702 program, and I believe there are several modifications to be made to help address these issues. Initially, a bouts collection um, should be codified and extended to all surveillance. In the context of abouts collection, we're referring to communications that are collected not involving the target directly, but in which a target is discussed, for example. This is a significant issue to tackle. And in October 2018 FISA court ruling, we know that Amici and the government disagree about whether um, statutory abouts limitation has any application to downstream collection. In 2018, uh, Congress required 
as part of the reauthorization there that even though the NSA had stopped or ceased doing about collection, that it would provide notice to Congress and the court uh, before um, reinstituting that. I think we need to clearly uh, codify the prohibition on about collection um, and not just make it a notice provision and also make clear that it applies to both upstream and downstream communications. Um, we also have to solve these these things called batch job queries, which is when at the Bureau in particular, um, they are able to run a large number of queries using one justification. In 2021, Director Ray, as part of the reforms, capped the number of queries without uh, approval of an FBI attorney at 100. However, you can get approval and you can run much larger numbers. Uh, We know that over the years, batch queries has been a source of some of the largest number of compliance incidents at the Bureau. Uh, Batch queries themselves are best seen as as bulk searches, and we should uh, consider uh, bringing an end to batch queries themselves. Additionally, um, the issue of of bulk searches reminds me of the president's recently released executive order 14806, which is one of the larger recent changes to signals intelligence made and is also part of the EU-US data protection framework. Um, It's great to see this executive order. I certainly applaud the president for signing it. It has brought important reforms uh, to improve the privacy and civil liberties, uh, not only of, of people in the United States, but also outside of the United States. One of the principles in the executive order is that surveillance needs to be necessary and proportionate. I have concerns about how batch queries can be made necessary and proportionate in in principle. And I also believe that given that the executive order has been out since October 2022, it's critical that we ensure that the intelligence community conduct an analysis that Section 702 operates consistently with the executive order. Uh, requiring the intelligence community to conduct an analysis now of how Section 702 operates consistent with the executive order, I believe, will be especially important um, because I do, as I mentioned earlier, share concerns about whether um, bulk or batch queries uh, could could meet this, this standard. And lastly, although most importantly, is uh, given the uh, compliance incidents Um, that have taken place around U.S. person queries, Um, given the relative lack of value that there appears to be for U.S. person queries, given that Section F2 orders are not taking place, I believe it is time for for Congress to require the, the government to obtain prior court authorization before permitting U.S. person uh, queries of Section 702 collections. So I understand that the PCLOB is working on a report about FISA Section 702. When might the public be able to read that report? We have hundreds of pages written, and we are hoping for a late summer or early fall release to the public. However, this is not entirely predictable because we're talking about a highly classified program where a substantial amount of declassification would need to take 
place. And that, that often takes a long time. For example, uh, the board uh, reviewed an NSA program called X-Keyscore as part of our review of surveillance tools under Executive Order 12333, um, which was a, a Reagan-era executive order about, among other things, signal intelligence. The board produced a detailed, classified report explaining NSA's use of X-Keyscore as an analytic tool and relevant privacy and civil liberties protections in late uh, 2020. Six months later or so, I was able to uh, release my unclassified statement regarding my concerns uh, with X-Keyscore. And it has been now um, more than a year and a half later since that statement was released, you know, more than two years since the report really was finalized. And we're we're still waiting for the Department of Justice and the NSA to clear our report for public release. Uh, That's a long time. We can't take that long with Section 702. Um, And I genuinely believe that the uh, intelligence community all the way up to the very tops of the community are working to uh, working with us to help us get the report out as quickly as we can and um, as transparently as we can while while protecting uh, national security interests as well. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners that maybe we didn't touch upon? We've mostly discussed uh, Section 702 um, in the context of the 2023 reauthorization and the consequences of this program for the privacy and civil liberties of U.S. persons. It's also worth noting that Section 702 has garnered international attention as well, particularly in Europe, where the program has been scrutinized by the Court of Justice of the European Union in connection with reviews of adequacy for transatlantic cross-border data transfer frameworks such as Privacy Shield and the new EU-US data privacy framework. These these frameworks are responsible for more than $7.1 trillion in EU-US economic relationship. Whatever reforms, if any, Congress and the IC adopt will undoubtedly impact the adequacy determination for the new DPS. So it's important to understand that there's a significant economic component to the reauthorization as well. Other than mentioning uh, the impact of Section 702 on the data privacy framework, I wanted to make sure to thank you, Stephanie, for your invitation to participate um, in this podcast today and for your insightful questions. I very much appreciated the engagement and the opportunity. And although they are not all here with me today, I also wanted to thank the staff of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board and my fellow board members who are right now all working tirelessly to complete our review of the Section 702 program. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Travis. And we will look forward to seeing the Peak Club's Section 702 report when it comes out. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. 
You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.